the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 4. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. So, things have taken a turn... If you've been following along up until now, you know that we've been receiving mysterious correspondence, culminating in a mysterious book which, after I read it, turned blank and caused a key to drop into my lap. Okay, not the strangest thing I've dealt with as the showrunner for the No Sleep podcast, but in this case I had no idea what the key was for. It wasn't some magical-looking ancient key. It was just a regular key for what seemed like a Yale lock. I figured our mysterious benefactor would write to me further with instructions about the key. A few days passed. Nothing came. And then I had a dream. I know, I know, this sounds like a setup, but I did. A dream about storage units. Storage units I recognized as being nearby. So, obviously, I went there. It didn't take me long to find the storage unit I was looking for. It was Unit DC-04, but even without the obvious name clue, I could tell. Something drew me towards it, and it was with shaking hands that I unlocked the storage unit and raised the door. I think I'd been expecting what I found there, and yet, as I stepped inside, I felt a sense of excitement, electricity in the air, a feeling of importance. The storage unit was filled with books. Books, correspondence, files, filing cabinets, various objects, all manner of storytelling devices. I knew immediately what our benefactor intended. There are stories here that we must tell. Almost as if in a trance, I reached out and my hand brushed a diary sitting on a bookshelf. My skin tingled as I touched it and I knew this was the one for today. There is far more to discover in this storage unit. I think I know where it comes from, for one thing, but I want to be sure. I'm going to research. So for now, let's listen to the very first piece of correspondence that I happened to pick up. The label on the diary says it was written by someone named Charlie Daniello. There's no title, of course, but I call it She Watches Me. June 13th. Dear nobody, or perhaps, if I'm gone, dear whoever happens to find this journal. Before anything else, 
I suppose I should declare the purpose with which I launch into this alarming letter. Part of me, the dwindling portion that believes that any of what I am about to tell you has happened at all, thinks that the act of writing it all down might help me make sense of it. No matter how silly it sounds, there's something about putting things into words that makes them real. Realer than if one hadn't written any account at all. At least, perhaps if I lay it all out in these pages, something will click in my mind, and the answer to whatever it is I am questioning about this whole situation will suddenly present itself to me. In the event that this chronicle doesn't result in the revelation of a miraculous solution I am hoping for, however, then at least it can serve as evidence of the deterioration of my mind and, at worst, of my death. The beginning didn't seem abrupt. Oddly enough, nor particularly alarming, I was nine years old, sitting on the floor of my bedroom and playing with some small plastic animals I used to be obsessed with. A thought came to me, not sudden, but rather slow and creeping, as though I were remembering something I had forgotten, but which wasn't pressing enough to warrant the skip of a heartbeat. The thought that I wasn't alone. She was always with me. I had the sensation that she had always been with me. This young girl with grayish skin and dark hair. I don't remember being afraid of her. Not at first. Perhaps by virtue of her having neither hurt me nor taunted me so far. In fact, at that point, I hadn't actually seen her, nor heard her, nor felt any physical evidence of her existence. How I knew what she looked like is beyond me. But the fact is that I did. And her appearance, although ghostly, inspired no more fear in me than my own reflection did when I looked in the mirror. Weeks must have passed by, maybe even months. And her presence, although constant and surveilling, was much more comfort than anything else. Even my parents, to whom I had mentioned my companion in passing, had dismissed her, to my face, as an imaginary friend. In hindsight, perhaps their inclination to shatter my idea that the girl was real was rooted in their deeply religious attitude, which I suppose led them to believe that the only invisible friend that a good little Christian girl should have is, well, God. In any case, although I was dismayed that they'd refused to believe that she was real, I realized that they had gotten one part right. She was my friend. Or, at the very least, I felt she regarded me that way. The trouble started when she began giving me rules. Rules to live by, rules to honor, rules I had to follow perfectly. At this point, I still hadn't experienced any evidence of her existence, other than feelings and thoughts. The rules simply appeared in my mind one morning, seemingly needing no explanation. They didn't appear as a carefully crafted list either, but rather as concepts with depth and clear expectations, but which I had to put my own words to. I'll make a list below with the initial rules, in no particular order. 1. Never point to an empty chair, nor an empty spot on the couch, nor any space meant to be sat on by a person, but which currently exists empty. 2. 
Never lose a crucifix, nor leave it anywhere except in its proper place. Three, never welcome silence except in sleep. Four, never stare into the mirror when alone. I was to avoid reflections when alone as well, but mirrors especially. Five, do not tell. This was the only rule that appeared as concrete words in my head. As unsettling as these rules were, and that they were plenty, I think what scared me most then was the implication that they came with. I was to follow the rules or else, although I didn't know what the or else threatened. You can imagine that I wasn't particularly inclined to find out the hard way. So I resolved to follow the rules. I avoided pointing at chairs. I stopped ever taking out my one crucifix, lest I forget to put it back. I brushed my teeth with my back to the bathroom mirror. I hummed and sang in silent rooms. And if ever I was questioned about my panicked looks or frantic humming, I heeded the last rule and said nothing. I first saw her a little while later, while attending my mom's friend's baby shower. The location the mother-to-be had picked was a small concrete gazebo out in the middle of a park. It would have been quite pleasant if it hadn't been for the fact that the event had started during the late evening and progressed into the darkness of night. As it was, the white-painted gazebo was a compact island in the midst of a sea of shadow, with the silhouette of the trees several meters away giving the illusion of enclosement. I didn't really understand baby showers, still don't in all honesty, nor was I any good at socializing with kids my age. So I had been sitting quietly, surrounded by the cacophony of music and other kids' shrieks, and staring out into the trees. With the sudden pounding of my heart, I realized that my friend, if I could still call her that, was there, watching me, surveilling me. For the first time since the day I'd noticed her existence, I could see her, standing still among the dark trees. Although she was far away, swallowed by shadows, and there was no possible way my eyes could see clearly in those conditions, something about our connection allowed me to see her with a level of detail that I never would have hoped for. What I had always pictured as smooth, grayish skin and shiny dark hair was nearly a blurred version of the reality I saw now. Stringy, slimy strands of black hair stuck to parts of her face. Her shoulders, down her arms, moistening her gray, damp, wrinkled skin with a viscous liquid. I could have screamed. Perhaps I should have. I like to think I would have, too, under normal circumstances. But the fact is that the moment I laid eyes on her, she added more rules to the list, jabbed them into my mind, like darts piercing cork. Six, if you see me out of the corner of your eye, pretend you have not. Seven, never look directly at me. Eight, when I stand in the same room, do not move. Nine, do not tell. Again, for some reason. That night, after my mother had turned off my lights and left my door jar and tucked my covers tightly under my body from my feet all the way up to my head and face, which I covered also, 
I was right to do so. In the middle of the night, I awoke to the sound of bare feet slapping on the floor of my room. The sound was not unlike how my own footsteps sounded when I would stomp into my room, except that these were much slower, and there was a slight dampness about them. Slap, slap, as I held my breath, a sob stuck in my throat. I wanted to sit up and look, perhaps in the name of curiosity, perhaps in hopes that she wasn't really there, but rules ever-oppressive echoed in my head. When I stand in the same room, do not move. Never look directly at me. Slap. 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 Growing ever closer. I tried and failed to keep my breathing slow. The blanket which enveloped all of me, causing me to sweat, and the air I breathed to be warm and uncomfortable. Slap. Slap in a slow releasing of air, like hissing somewhere near my left ear. Then, loudly, the sound of my father snoring startled me, and I sat up, panting. It was morning, and there were no slapping footsteps, nor any snoring, nor anything out of the ordinary at all. It is getting dark outside, and I must go wrap myself in my blanket for the night, lest I be caught unprepared tomorrow. I will tell you more. Good night me. June 14th. Dear nobody, I feel I may be running out of time. She watches me. If I don't hurry up with my writing this, I fear it may forever remain unfinished. I fear, too, that this account may be doing nothing to help my case and may instead be provoking my friend in ways she should never be provoked. Does writing all of this down count as telling about it? I would hope not. I haven't broken any of her rules today, and as brave as I like to think myself, I shudder to think of the outcome if I do. However, since I'm already writing this, I suppose I can tell you about what happened when I broke the rules. Although my friend visited me almost every night, I was ten by the time I broke a rule. I like to think of this as a sort of achievement, children being as scatterbrained as they are and all. It was an honest mistake, but one that terrified me beyond words. I was having a sleepover with my Graham in her apartment, as I did at least once every month. She had been my roommate until I was five, when my parents moved into my own house, and consequently we were an inseparable pair. We'd been drinking chamomile tea in front of the TV, watching Tom and Jerry or The Pink Panther or one of those shows I loved at the time. When she started looking for the remote to adjust the volume and asked me if I'd seen it. As I lifted my cup to my tea and drank, I spotted it sitting on one of the cushions of the empty couch across from where I sat. Now, normally, I'd have been used to either nodding in the direction of the couch or else using my words. However, being that I couldn't well nod or speak while gulping sweet chamomile tea, I released my pinky finger from the handle of my cup and pointed it directly at the barren couch. I realized what I'd done the very second I did it. My eyes seemed to follow the imaginary line between the tip of my pinky finger and the soft, undisturbed cushion of the couch. Before bed, I asked my grandmother, does it count as pointing if you do it with your pinky? She said she didn't know. 
That night, my friend's damp footsteps in my room seemed to echo louder than ever before. They seemed to vary in speed, too, which unsettled me. They fluctuated from being minutes apart to being rapid, erratic, flighty. I hoped with all my heart that my grandma would hear something and come to check on me, if only from the brief respite from the incessant pacing that it would signify. As it stands, she didn't. And just before I succumbed, exhausted, to sleep, I heard a single word spoken. No, almost croaked into my ear. Three. The second and last time she saw me break a rule was also the first time I felt I had real proof of my tormentor's existence. Although I know now that no adult would have believed me, even if I had told. It was early afternoon and I was laying in bed, playing with my plastic animals and humming random melodies to fill the silence, as I'd gotten used to doing over the past few years. Years, mind you, full of paralyzed nights, terror, and anxiously checking the location of the crucifix despite the fact that I had abandoned using it years ago. Anyway, I'd been laying and playing and humming, and without realizing it, I fell asleep without pulling the blanket tight over my head, as I'd been doing thus far, and with the plastic tiger in my hand. When I awoke, the sun no longer shining on my face, what chilled me wasn't the presence of the familiar footsteps pacing in my room. Instead, it was the thought that there was nothing not even a flimsy blanket pulled tight over my eyes which separated me from her. I waged my options. I could do nothing and risk my curiosity compelling me to peek at my friend, thus breaking one rule as well as ensuring that I would pee my pants from the fear of seeing her there. Or I could very, very slowly move my hand up to my face and cover my eyes with the little plastic tiger I was still holding, and still break a rule, but perhaps not get caught, I decided, perhaps to my detriment, to go with the latter option. As I slowly, almost imperceptibly, I thought, inched my hand up from my chest to my neck, finally up over my eyes, there was no change in the pace of the footsteps. There was no hissing, no croaking, Nothing. I thought I'd gotten away with it. The next morning, the only thing left of my toy was a mangled, distorted mess. Nothing but deep bite marks in the thin film of slimy, translucent gray muck and the same substance painted on the wall directly in my line of sight. A word. Two. I didn't get a chance to... Have to go. June 15th. Dear nobody, there's a reason why yesterday's entry ended the way it did, and it is proof that things are getting worse. I sat at my desk writing last night with the radio playing in the background to avoid silence when I heard the faint sound of wet footsteps making their way up and down the hall outside my room. They should not have been there. She should not have been there. I didn't break any of the rules. I've been good. I've been obedient. This event only leads me to believe that this account does count as telling. But if that is the case, then there is nothing I can do about it now, except finish it. 
before she administers whatever punishment she has in store for me. I refuse to live like this anymore, even if the only other option is not to live at all. (sighs) As I was beginning to write yesterday, I didn't get a chance to break the rules a third time in my childhood, because these happenings found a curious way to stop. The short of it is, my little sister, who had been living in my parents' bedroom ever since she'd been born, finally became old enough to be my roommate. This meant not only that I was seldom alone in our room, and thus that it was never silent, but also that I wouldn't have to sleep alone anymore. And, as I had found out early on, my friend never manifested herself when I had company. This isn't to say that I had forgotten about her immediately, or lost my terror of her. No, I still very much followed her rules. Although the times when I had to think about some of them, and why I was following them, were much fewer and farther between. Over the years, some of me stayed changed by her. For instance, my never pointing at things with my fingers, being uncomfortable with silence, holding a distaste for mirrors and religious artifacts and imagery. But my memory of the reason behind all these quirks of mine faded further than even the back of my mind. Finally, sometime when I was 16, I stopped covering my face when I slept, and the last of her memory faded to an echo. But although it has been almost 10 years since then, everything is going to shit again. See, I visited my parents in their hometown about a month ago. I hadn't seen them in a while, and I thought it'd be nice for them to meet my girlfriend Delilah. They'd been asking to meet her for months, and I thought it might be cute to show her the home where I grew up. I won't bore you with the details of how dinner went and all that, because frankly, I don't think I have the time anymore. Suffice it to say that the conversation led to my dad bringing down a dusty old box from the attic and showing Delilah everything from my baby pictures to the stuffed animal I'd loved when I was five. As they laughed and talked enthusiastically, I busied myself by digging through the box, in search of nothing in particular. I felt my heart leap when my fingers brushed against something cool and plastic, with small bumps and edges and a sticky quality to its surface. I pulled it out of the box and held it under the light, only to recognize what had once been a toy tiger, but now was nothing but a chewed-up mess covered in a dark, sticky film of dried-up, muck. The memories came back that night, along with the footsteps. I tried to tell myself that it was all in my head, a temporary return of what surely had been a childhood fear of an imaginary threat. There were no rules. There was no her. There was only fear. And fear by itself, I told myself, wasn't dangerous. The squelching of my imaginary tormentor's feet continued. Just to prove to myself that it wasn't real, I opened my eyes and sat up in bed. I saw her. I saw a flash of her hair as she ducked out my bedroom door and into the hallway. I saw her cold, blank eyes and the hint of a smirk on her scarred lips as she croaked a single word. One. I saw her. I saw her. And she saw me. She watched me. She watches me still. I can feel her. I don't know what happens when she reaches zero. 
but something tells me that the last words in this pitiful chronicle might well be the last I ever write. The only comfort I can find in all of this is that I will finally, finally be able to tell yours truly, me. our first tale, we join a young woman who's down on her luck, but it's looking up. She's found a new apartment, or flat in this case. However, her best friend is pretty eager to insist that the place might be haunted. And in this tale, shared with us by author Trisha Lother, it begins to seem like the friend might be correct. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Andy Cresswell, Mary Murphy, and James Cleveland. So pay attention to those strange creaks and bumps in the night. Don't assume it's just your imagination. Some places are just cursed, such as in the case of The Haunting of April Heights. I should have listened to the dog. When I first tried to go through the front door of my new flat, my Airedale crossbreed Maddie pulled me back. She nearly yanked my arm off. I rubbed my shoulder. What's the matter, girl? Never known you not to stick by my side. Fair enough. The hallway was unwelcoming. All the doors were closed so it was dark. I ordered Maddie to stay and went inside to let in some light. Three bedrooms ran along the left-hand side of the corridor, and at the end, another door led to the large living room with its coffin-sized balcony. On the far side of the living room, a door led to the kitchen and bathroom. I opened all the doors wide, let the grey daylight in, and called Maddie. Nope. Stubborn creature. I grabbed the half-chewed tennis ball in my bag and threw it down the hall. Fetch! Come on, girl! She plonked herself down with a whine so I shrugged and left her there. I needed to get on with pre-move cleaning. Maddie's behaviour was weird, but she'd come round, I'm sure. Back then, I prided myself on being logical and down-to-earth. It was the late 80s on a Liverpool council estate with three high-rise blocks named April, May and June Heights. They had a bad reputation. Drugs, crime and general squalor, but they were big and cheap. My place was on the top floor of April. It had an amazing view across the city. Plus, my best mate Jules lived next door. I couldn't afford the rent on my old place since I'd kicked out my constantly stoned and occasionally violent ex. This was my fresh start. On my next visit, Jules was home. She looked after Maddie while I slapped dingy plum paint all over the living room walls. Susie and the Banshees for company on the ghetto blaster. The colour had looked warm and interesting in the shop but in here it seemed to absorb all light. I stepped back, hands on hips and sighed. The walls emanated gloom. I'd try and brighten the place up later, 
once I got all my gear in. On moving day, I had to bribe Maddie to come in. I bought a pig's ear from the market, her favourite. In the van on the way, she drooled at the scent. Once there, I walked down the hallway holding it out, and she scuttled in after me, ears flat, tail between legs. Success! She settled down in the kitchen with her reward, and I stuck the kettle on. Jules hovered around, sticking her peroxide blonde head in and out of cupboards, commenting on the differences between my place and hers. Mine was better, apparently. You could have some brill parties up here, Elise. All this space. I wish we had three bedrooms. Jules shared a one-bedroom flat with her boyfriend, Rob, their whippet, Wraith, and three cats. Mog 1, Mog 2, and Mog 3. At least, that's what I called them. I won't be so bothered by the noises now I know you're in here. I squished a tea bag on the side of the mug and plopped it in the sink. Noises? Yeah, weird noises at night. They echo through the flats. It's hard to tell where they're coming from exactly. Some nights. She took a drag on a ciggy, the end stained purple with a lipstick, then continued. I'd swear there was someone in here. Right, thanks for telling me that. I pulled a face, but I wasn't concerned. Old buildings make noise, so what? Jules was a hardcore goth. I loved the music and the makeup, but she was into everything. Horror films, ghost stories, fortune telling. The idea of my flat being haunted clearly amused her, but I wasn't going to entertain her on it. I pointed to the balcony and grinned. Thanks for that, by the way. It's brilliant. I'll leave the decision of which of my sad, neglected houseplants to put in it until later. Her flap warming gift to me was a huge plant pot. Black, of course. Splattered with red squiggles. Jules rubbed her arms. Tell you what, you need to get a decent heater in here. It's bloody freezing. It was late by the time I got around to sorting my bedroom out. I was folding T-shirts to the sound of the cure when something made me turn the volume down. From the corridor, Maddie growled. Something in my abdomen shifted and I searched for a weapon. The pitch of Maddie's growls rose higher and she began to whine. Then a crash and Maddie's box grew frenzied. I grabbed my chunky marble ashtray and edged into the hallway. Cold silence until Maddie heard toward me with frantic little yips. I grabbed a collar and peeped into the living room. The balcony doors were wide open. The floor was a mess. My new pot plant was smashed to pieces. I walked in, picked up a fragment and examined it. Then I looked over the balcony rail to the pavement, 15 floors below. No way anyone could have climbed up here. Maddie must have broken the pot somehow. Was it you, Maddie? Did you see a bird? Not a rat, I hope. She gave a low growl. What's the matter with you? You've never growled at me before. I found the dustpan and brush and swept up the mess while Maddie watched, head tilted to one side. I won't cry on my first night, I told myself. It didn't matter. It was just a flower pot, and Maddie was just unsettled by the move. I pulled the balcony door shut with a shiver and made sure to lock it. In bed at last, Maddie curled up on the end of my new striped duvet cover, and I ruffled her scruffy black and tan head. No doubt she'd work her way up the bed overnight, try and take it over. 
Since the breakup, I'd found it comforting to have her near at night. The sound of her breathing and little doggy smiles made me feel less alone. In the night, Maddie's growling woke me. Shh, it's okay. I thought she was dreaming, but she lifted her head and stiffened. I squinted at the alarm clock. 2.53am. Maddie was trembling. Her nervy whines grew louder and turned to insistent little barks. Then she sat bolt upright and decided to go for it, full pelt. Jesus, Maddie, what is it? I turned the light on, my stomach churning like a washing machine as I checked around the flat. Nothing. But Maddie continued to bark. I did my best to calm her. And eventually, after a few shaky whimpers, she settled down. I found my chunky ashtray, so much for cutting down on the fags, lit a cigarette and watched the little light burn down in the darkness. Within a few days, Jules and I got into the routine of taking our dogs out for a morning walk together on the local field. Were you throwing toys for Maddie in the middle of the night? Why would I do that? Well, whatever you were doing kept me awake. All the scuffling noises. It sounded like someone was running up and down your hallway. I stopped walking and turned to face her. Are you making this up just to freak me out, Jules? No, I... Because if you are, it's not funny. Maddie's been going berserk every bloody night and it's driving me mad. I could do without anything else. She shook her head. Elise, I'm not making it up, honest. Look. Maybe it was someone downstairs. I told you I sometimes hear odd noises. Or maybe Maddie was in the hallway, playing with a toy by herself. Maddie sleeps in my room. She wakes up barking at exactly seven minutes to three every night. One of Jules' thinly drawn black eyebrows rose behind her crimped fringe. Maybe that's just the time someone in the building gets home from work. Always at 2.53. Jules shrugged. Maybe someone's central heating clicks on at that time. Hmm, maybe. Strange time to set the heating off, though. And I don't see why that would send Maddie berserk. Oi, Maddie! I staggered as Maddie charged through my legs. (laughs) Yes, because she's normally so well behaved. I groaned. Maddie had spotted a game of football in the distance. Maddie, heel! I tried my most authoritative tone of voice to no effect. I'd have to apologise to the players once I caught her. She loved to chase balls, and if she spotted one before I could slip a lead on, then that was it. Zoom. Dog gone. Back in the lobby, we bumped into Baldy Bill, the caretaker. As he left the lift, I remembered something. Bill, I've some letters for the previous tenant. Do you have a forwarding address? He hesitated and rubbed at his ear. Just pop them into the office. I'll sort it out. A scratchy voice like dead leaves came from behind him. If it's for Mrs. Morgan, write deceased on the envelope and send it back. A craggy-faced woman, layered in long skirts, coat and shawls, shuffled out of the lift. Jules wrinkled her nose. The woman pointed at me. What's with all the carry-on in the middle of the night? I, uh... And shut that damn dog up. I don't know what they were thinking when they let you in. She wandered away, muttering. What? Maddie threw a defiant bark at her back. 
That night, Jules and Rob were going to a party that I had no desire to attend. My ex would be there, with his new woman. By eight, I was curled up in my huge grey armchair. It was old, but comfy. Dad had showed up with it one day, saying they'd only been going to throw it out anyway, so I may as well have it. Mam and Dad had been dead set against me moving in with him in the first place, so there was no way was I going crawling back to them now. I was fine. I had chocolate, a bottle of Merry Down Cider, and 20 Embassy. I had a faithful hound, a VHS collection, and possibly a ghost, but I wasn't going to think about that. It was cold again, so I brought my duvet into the living room and snuggled up in front of the TV. Maddie attempted to get under the duvet with me, but eventually ended up outside it, flopped across my legs. Her warm body soothed me. I ran my fingers through her fur and talked to her about my ex, my parents, my skintness. She was such a good listener. By the early hours I was watching a Kate Bush video, the one where a masked man shadows her every move. That was when something scraped at the living room door. I turned the sound off. Under the duvet, my blood chilled. Maddie grew taut. She jumped off my lap and faced the door, hackles up. Little puffs of icy air rose from her nostrils. She snarled, long and low. The air filled with static. I wanted to run, but there was nowhere to go. Maddie backed towards me, growling fiercely. Then she jumped. She snapped at the air. My chest tightened. Then Maddie charged towards the balcony and hurled herself at the glass doors. I let go of the duvet. I'd been clutching it so tightly that my fingers hurt. An odd smell licked at my nose, like a struck match. Maddie whined and scrabbled at the balcony door. It's okay, Maddie. I cuddled her, rubbed and soothed the thick fur around her neck until she calmed down enough to give my face a few stinky dog-breath licks. By morning I'd convinced myself that it had just been a few creaks, just some of those noises old buildings make. Rats at worst. I was getting freaked out by the trivial things because I was on my own. Maddie was sensitive to my feelings. The heating system was ancient. That was why it was always freezing. Everything was explainable. Bad dreams were just bad dreams. It was a day or two later when I caught up with the old woman from the lift. I spotted her on the road heading back from the newsagents. She was making a painful show of lugging four carrier bags home. Would you like some help? She grimaced, which I took as a yes, and I picked up the bags, which were full of tins. By the time we reached the lifts, I was glad to drop the bastards. Amidst the scent of ammonia, I asked a stupid question. So, what happened to the woman before me? She narrowed her beady eyes. Bent over the balcony. After that, every time I ventured onto the balcony... I couldn't help but look down and imagine how Mrs. Morgan's body had looked after it hit the ground. Depression poured at me. I dreaded winter. It was freezing up here already. The heating didn't work properly, but the guy the council sent round insisted there was nothing wrong with it. I kept music or the television on constantly, but nothing lifted the atmosphere. Only Maddie. She made sure I got up in the mornings. Some nights I'd wake and think someone was in the room. My breath frosted the air as Maddie's tense growls echoed. One night I woke sure something had clutched my leg. Another night I woke with the sensation of cold hands around my throat. Just vivid dreams, I told myself. Just anxiety. 
thoughts of Mrs. Morgan gnawed at me. One evening, Jules brought a psychic round. These days, everyone's heard of the flamboyant clairvoyant Vince Kinsella, but back then he was just Vinny, an old mate of Rob's who told fortunes at parties. Jules had told him my flat had a strange atmosphere and that I was having bad dreams. I brought Vinny to do an exorcism, was how she put it when I opened the door. Vince Kinsella was a skinny goth, white-faced with crimped black hair. He wore a long coat and pointy-buckled shoes. He was nothing like the smart-suited silver-haired guy who now makes appearances on the Ghostly Channel, tours theatres and predicts the future in spooky true-life mags. I was sceptical, but made us all tea and passed the custard creams around. I relayed what old Joan downstairs had told me about the previous tenant. Mrs Morgan had unexpectedly discharged herself from a psychiatric ward, walked home in the middle of the night and found her husband in bed with someone else. She then ran screaming through the flat and jumped off the balcony. Vince thought that explained things. If you feel her presence, tell her to go to the light. Say it clearly and firmly. I doubt she means you any harm. At my raised eyebrow, he sighed and put his tea down on the upturned tea chest I used as a coffee table. I'll see what I can pick up. Could you lower the lights in here, please? I lit some candles, put one on the tea chest, two on the mantelpiece. As I was about to switch the overhead light off, the temperature dipped and Vinny turned as grey as the armchair he sat in. I'd heard that people's faces can change colour in an instant, but I'd never seen it happen before. I have to go. And that was it. He left. His tea was still hot. Jules ran after him. Good job I've got you for company, eh, Maddy? We settled down in front of the telly yet again. She dropped her chin onto my knee and gave an offended whine. It had been hard to get the tenancy of this flat. I imagined the look on the council official's face if I asked to be rehoused due to a haunting. Moving back in with my parents wasn't feasible. Even if I could put up with their smug, I told you so looks, they would never have put up with Maddie's molting. They were extremely house proud. Next day, I collected some photos from the chemists. The camera had been lying around in my room, and I'd noticed the film had been used up. I couldn't remember what half of them were. Probably pics taken on nights out. Me, Jules, Rob, and assorted others. There might be some of the ex on there, too. I decided to drop in on Jules. We could look at them together, and maybe she could tell me what had freaked Vinny out so much. In her kitchen, she made us coffee. Vinny saw something... He didn't want to say what in front of you. He didn't want to frighten you. Oh, great. What was it? She scrunched her mouth up and looked at her mug. Are you enjoying this? Come on, Jules, spill the beans. I have to live there. He said he saw a woman run past. Said she was being chased. I frowned. The ghost of Mrs Morgan, I suppose. Who was chasing her? Her husband. No. Jules chewed her lip. He said he wasn't sure it was even human. He said it was old. She lowered her voice to a whisper. Ancient. He said he's never seen anything like it. He was terrified. I stayed in Jules' flat for the rest of the day. 
Apart from a quick walk, Maddie got left on her own because of her tendency to hassle Jules' cats. I scoured the for rent section of the local paper. Everywhere was either too expensive or wouldn't allow pets. Day turns to evening. Evening turns to night. You can stay here tonight if you want. You know, keep on the sofa. Next door, Maddie barked. Thanks, but it's all right. I've left Maddie on her own long enough. I'd best get back. It'll be okay. Not sure who I was trying to convince. I picked up my bag. Oh, I forgot. Photos. I pulled them out and waved them at her with a grin. We went through them, laughing and exclaiming. Then Jules stopped. She frowned and stared at me, mouth open. What's this? She handed me the picture. It was dark, so I'd skimmed past thinking it was underexposed. There were a few that hadn't developed properly. It was me, asleep in bed, under my new duvet. How? The words stuck in my throat. Air pressed in on me. I can't go back, Jules. I can't go back in there. Jules put her hand on my shoulder. It's okay. You don't need to. When Rob gets back, we'll send him next door for Maddie. You can both stay here tonight. We'll sort something out. Nodding, I sniffed and wiped my nose on my hand. Wraith the Whippet appeared at my side, whimpered and licked my hand. Maddie barked again. Rob worked in a city centre pub. He wouldn't be back until after midnight. I should go and fetch her. I'll just grab her and come straight back. Jules stood with me by my front door, paler than usual. I took a deep breath before turning the key. When it opened, there was that weird smell again. Sulfurous, like matches. Maddie? The end bedroom door that faced the front door. The one I always kept shut tight because the flap was so drafty, was wide open. I ran down the hall to the living room. Elise? Maddie, where are you? I had to get out. I needed air. Icy fingers wrapped around my throat. I clutched my neck. The balcony door was open. I ran through it. Maddie appeared next to me, barking madly. I clung onto the rail and gulped in cool breathfuls of air. Every detail of what happened next has remained clear in my mind ever since. Something shoved me, hard, in the back. If the rail had been any lower, or if I hadn't been holding it so tightly, I'd have gone over. Something rolled up the ridges of my spine. Pressure on the back of my neck pushed my head forward. I stared down at the ground. Fighting it, I pulled back and looked into Maddie's eyes. Her head was level with mine. She was being lifted over the balcony. I've replayed it so many times. Everyone says she must have jumped, but she didn't. I saw it. I still dream about her. Joy fills me as I see her face. But then I remember. In slow motion, her body silently bucks and rides through the air. Her huge dark eyes hold mine, filled with fear and confusion. She falls away from me. My hands stretch out, but it's too late. She plummets to the ground and hits the concrete. Everything turns red. I moved back in with Mum and Dad the next day. Whenever I walk past the supermarket where the heights used to be, I search for the spot of sky where I once lived. What happens to ghosts when buildings get demolished? 
Where is that ancient being now? I still think of myself as logical and down-to-earth, but these days my mind is more open than it used to be. The playing field where Jules and I walk the dogs is still there. At the edge sits an old oak tree. On its trunk the words, R.I.P. Maddy, are carved deep into the centre of a heart. Women are regularly judged on their looks, expected to make an effort, expected to be presentable at all times. So it's no wonder that a disfiguring injury could especially cause body dysmorphia in a woman. And in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, it's even more impactful because the woman is dead. Performing this tale are Alexis Bristow, Danielle McRae, and Matthew Bradford. So if you wear them, take your glasses off. Maybe it'll blur the lines between reality and nightmare. Or at least it'll stop you getting too close a glimpse of the shy lady. You can only see her when you can't see her. There are a lot of theories surrounding her. She was a great beauty who died of a wasting disease that left her hideous in death. She was attacked by a spurned suitor and committed suicide after he disfigured her face. She was murdered and mutilated to keep people from identifying her. Whichever version of her untimely end is given, what follows is always the same. When the shy lady appears, you're in trouble. No one knows how or why she picks her victims. They can be a man or woman, child or adult, any race, creed, or religion. The only thing that links them is their bad eyesight. She waits until they've taken off their glasses or removed their contacts before she makes herself known. Always standing at a distance, always just out of clear view. Descriptions are vague, but it's been said that she seems to be wearing some kind of dress... White or red, it varies, and she has long, pale hair. Could you love a creature like me, she asks. Don't say yes. If you do, she'll pull you into a bone-breaking embrace and squeeze the life out of you. Don't say no. If you do, she'll fly into a fit of rage, and you'll end up a cut-up mess that only dental records can identify. If you run, she'll just show up again later to get her answer. I didn't know any of this, not until the first time I saw her, or rather, saw her. I've been nearsighted my whole life and can't see more than a few inches in front of my face. Without my glasses, my eyeballs are pretty much just for decoration. The only times I don't have them on are when I'm sleeping or showering. It was when I was doing the latter that I first encountered the shy lady. I was in the middle of washing my hair and singing nonsense down at the brown blur that was my dog, Samwise, lying on the bath mat just outside the frosted glass shower door. 
He could be a high-strung critter at the best of times, so when I heard his first growl, I didn't think anything of it. A bird could chirp a mile away and he'd be grumbling about it. The whimper that came after was more unexpected. And when he started clawing at the shower door, desperate to get in, I knew for sure something was wrong. As I started to turn toward him, a flash of color from the door, which was opened into my bedroom, caught my eye. Red. I had no red in my bedroom. It was all white with splashes of purple, something my sister teased me endlessly about when she visited. What I found calming and peaceful, she found sterile. But now there was red. I almost slipped with how fast I jerked around. Between my fuzzy eyesight and the opaque glass, all I could see was a human-shaped blur in shades of red sitting on the end of my bed. Allison? It felt dumb leaving my mouth. My sister lived a thousand miles away. There was no way she'd be in my house, sitting in my room. The figure on my bed hadn't moved. I began to try and rationalize it. I'd left a dress out without remembering it. My husband had snuck flowers in a really, really tall red vase into our room before he left for work. Something he'd never done before, but no time like the present to start, right? Samwise continued to claw wildly at the shower door. Could you love a creature like me? Samwise howled. I screamed. I'd learned a long time ago that the best spot for my glasses was always within reach, and I was never more grateful for that lesson than in that moment. I snatched the plastic case I kept in the shower and snapped it open to grab my glasses. By the time I'd put them on, the woman was gone. There was no work for me that day. Just checking that all the doors and windows were locked, looking for signs of a break-in, and searching every square inch of my house for any shred of evidence anyone but myself and my husband had been inside. Of course, there was none, and I was left doubting whether I'd actually seen anything at all. It was that doubt that made me keep the experience to myself. I didn't even mention it to my husband Alex when he came home that night. He would have listened, been supportive, offered insight into what I might have seen, but I didn't want that. I just wanted to forget how deeply unsettled I'd felt, how that voice had made my skin crawl, if there'd actually been any voice at all. Samwise had been barking so much and the water was running, I could have interpreted a completely innocent sound as words. I've read somewhere that brains do that sometimes. Same with finding faces and objects. We try to humanize things. Alex and Sam Wise went to bed before me that night. I stayed up to watch the tail end of the movie we'd started. At some point, I started to doze off and took my glasses off to rub my eyes. The moment they'd been removed and the room became a swirl of colors and vague shapes, I heard her again. Could you ever love a creature like me? The question came from the kitchen behind me. It was dark barely lit by the glow of the TV screen, and I could barely see anything except a slash of red against the shadows. She was closer this time. My throat constricted painfully, cutting off the yelp that was trying to force its way out. Instinctively, I shoved my glasses back on while reaching for the table lamp. Once again, she was gone as soon as I could see clearly, but this time, a quiet, frustrated hiss lingered where she had been. Alex was confused and then concerned when I leapt into bed and shook him awake. He let me ramble on about what I'd seen in silence, nodding every now and again to let me know he was still listening. 
I told him I felt the house was haunted. He laughed. (laughs) Out of all the reactions that I might have gotten, that was the last one I expected. I was hurt that he wasn't taking me seriously, and when he saw that, he took my hand and apologized. It's just not like you. What isn't? Not to get so wrapped up in his story. When I just stared blankly at him, he continued. You remember when I told you about the shy lady? We'd watched that show about urban legends, and you asked if I'd remembered any from when I was a kid. I didn't, but I had had a few beers before then. Maybe too many looking back on it. You know, you can only see her when you can't see her. That one. She haunts people with bad eyesight or something. I, I don't really remember the details. So, you're telling me... That your imagination is working overtime. (sighs) I let Alex go back to sleep after he comforted me a bit, but I had trouble making myself turn out the light and take off my glasses. I sat up in bed beside my husband, Samwise curled up between us, and hugged my pillow to my chest. Slowly, hesitantly, I slid my glasses halfway down the bridge of my nose until I could just peer over the top of them. My heartbeat was so loud, I'm surprised Alex didn't wake up again. She was there, standing at the foot of the bed, a blur of red and pale yellow so close she could reach out and grab my leg. When she spoke, her raspy whisper had gone from sad to simmering. Could you ever love? Samwise stirred, his hackles raised. I pushed my glasses up quickly. My vision was perfectly clear again and the shy lady was gone. I laid a hand on Samwise's head, both to comfort him and to take comfort from his sturdy little presence, and tried to calm my shuddering breathing. Whatever Alex wanted to believe, I knew what I'd seen. I knew I was being stalked by something and that it was getting closer and angrier every time I saw it. My glasses didn't come off again for a long while. I read a lot online in the next few days. Anything and everything even remotely related to the shy lady. I learned the various rumors about her origin, what supposedly happened when you answered her question, the certain fate that seemed to follow her sightings. But that couldn't be all there was to it. People knew about her. There had to be a way to escape her. All anyone said was that you had better invest in some 24-hour wear contacts, When I grilled Alex for more details, he just shrugged and said the only thing he remembered was that she chose people with bad eyesight to avoid being really seen. You can only see her when you can't see her. I don't know if it was brave or stupid what I did next, but after hearing that she didn't want to be seen, I got an idea in my head. The next time I was home alone, I locked Samwise safely in my room, where he whined and pawed at the door as if he knew what I was going to do. I turned on every light in my house despite it being the middle of the day, and I pulled one of the dining table chairs over to the wall. Once I'd sat down, my back to the wall, and the house opened up in front of me, I took a deep breath and removed my glasses. I'd barely gotten them off before I heard her, angry and growling. Could you ever love a creature like me? She was only feet away, Still blurry and indistinct, but obviously a woman. I could see deep red lines, the same shade as her dress, running across the pale skin of her face. Her breath was slow, gurgling and sour. My nails bit into the seat of my chair as I clutched it, both to keep myself from running 
and from putting my glasses back on. Samwise was shrieking from the bedroom. The door shook as he clawed and leapt at it. Could you ever love a creature like me? She wanted her answer. The shy lady and I stared at each other. I was almost afraid I wouldn't be able to speak. My voice shook when I finally forced the words out. Let me get a better look at you. Come closer. She howled and swept backwards. Her hands were in front of her face. It seemed to be working. Emboldened by my success, I stood and dared to take a step toward her. The shy lady cowered further away. I continued walking toward her, convinced that at any moment my legs would give out and I'd collapse. She continued to shrink away, weeping and mewling until I'd backed her into a wall. Come closer! With a final, furious cry, she crumpled to the floor. I blinked, and she was gone. I'd never vomited from fear before, but I did then. All over our hardwood floors where she'd just been. I've not seen her since, but I still keep my glasses close at hand. Who can say if the trick I used once will be enough to ward her off a second time? Still, I wanted to pass my story on in case... Anyone else ever finds themselves in the presence of the Shy Lady? At least now, you might have a chance to escape her. Returning home to where you grew up can bring back all sorts of memories. A smell might remind you of a beloved moment in childhood. A sound, a feeling, anything. But in this tale, shared with us by author Christopher G. Matten, we're reminded that not all childhood memories are sweet. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Wafia White, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Goodnight, and Jeff Clement. So dwell on the past if you must. Remember the good times and even the bad times. But for God's sake, try to forget the night terrors. Chills overtook my body at the sight of my childhood home, a dreary gray monolith that scraped the overcast sky with its steep Victorian roof. The intricate molding and depressing color scheme tried forcing me to summon up the horrible faces that once tormented my young mind, but I forced them down, like unwelcoming bile rising in my throat at an altogether inconvenient time. You know, Vanessa, it's really not too late to turn back. She's your mother. I don't mean without her. I just mean, like, why can't she stay with us? In our studio apartment. Where would she sleep? The couch? I hardly think that's fair. Well, then, why don't we put her in a home? (gasps) A home? Vincent, that woman raised you. And let's be honest here. You weren't entirely easy to raise. I sighed and looked up at the house, 
The dusty black windows on the stale gray walls reminded me of the eyes of an executed killer. Empty, but no less emotive than they had ever been before. This place had always been a desolate nightmare to me. I just... I, I don't like this place. My childhood was horrible. It wasn't my mother's fault. She was great. There were other... <sighs> things. Vanessa placed her hand on the back of my head and gently rubbed. I know, babe. It's only two weeks. Your brother will be back from his trip, and things will be back to normal. Besides, your mother really misses you. Don't you think it'll be good for her to finally see you again after all these years? I reluctantly nodded my head. Yeah, you're right, I guess. Come on, let's go inside. Vanessa smiled, and we both exited the car, the gravel crunching beneath our feet as we hauled our luggage up the wooden porch to the front door. I gripped the cast iron door knocker and wrapped it against the wood three times. They were empty, echoing sounds. In the distance, the cawing of a night bird answered the hollow cadence. When my mother answered, I was so taken aback I nearly collapsed. Her skin had an ever so faint hint of yellow to it, and it sagged miserably. Her unwieldy gray hair shot out in every direction, and her clothes were covered in deep wrinkles. Her eyes were unfocused and distant, not really looking at me, but rather looking through me, as if I were transparent. Vincent, oh my, is school already out? How was your... And, and who's this? Is this your girlfriend? You never told me you had a girlfriend. My mother stepped forward and hugged me. Mom, that's... that's my wife, Vanessa. You know her. You were at the wedding, remember? My voice cracked as the severity of my mother's condition really set in, coupled with the guilt of having abandoned her all those years ago. It's nice to see you again, Carrie. Yes, yes. Well, you better come in quick. The hurricane will hit us any minute. What are you talking about, Mom? There's no hurricane. Of course there is. Hurricane Gloria. Why, the news was just talking about it. Come in, come in. Every word my mother spoke drove a spike deeper and deeper into my heart. Had I ever been there for my mother in the past six years? Had I ever spoken to her once? I would have known how far she had slipped, how ill she really was. But I wasn't, and there was nothing I could do to fix that, to return those years of callous abandonment. Now I set your brother's room for you to sleep in. I remember how much you hated your own room. You know where it is. Of course, Mom. Thank you so much. I'll lead Vanessa up to the room, and once we're all settled in, we'll come down, and all three of us can catch up. A huge smile broke out over my mom's face. I can't wait. Vanessa and I began up the stairs when my mom spoke again. Oh, Vinny, darling, there's a surprise waiting for you up in your room. I can't wait to see it, Mom. We continued up the stairs to my brother's room at the end of the hallway. Did you see how happy your mother was? Yeah. Yeah, I did. You know, we need to get her out of this horrible place. I looked around. The shadows of the house seemed to move, to reach out in an attempt to embrace me. I shivered. The first thing I noticed when I opened the door was the sheets. They were untidy, wrinkled, and looked slept in. 
The white pillowcases had little streaks of dirt across them, and the comforter hung half on, half off the bed. I sighed, placing my suitcase down, and walked over to the bed. Why is there dirt on the... (gasps) When I pulled the blankets back, the rest of the sentence lodged itself in my throat. All of the air was sucked from my lungs, and I stumbled backwards, crashing into the dresser and knocking a picture frame over. Vanessa craned her neck to see over the mound of blankets blocking what I had found and let out a piercing scream. The ancient corpse of a dog was curled up on the blanket. Clumps of dirt clung to its hairless body, and its eyes were no more than dark sockets. Its skin was shrunken to its bones like canvas over a wooden frame, and a permanent snarl was etched into its papery muzzle. Vanessa began to gag. I just stared, unable to find the words that would adequately describe my horror. Patriot! It was so excited to see you. I thought you'd be happy to see him too. Oh, how he missed you! I looked to the doorway to see my mother standing in the hall, swaying back and forth like an impatient toddler. Vanessa turned and once again screamed, nearly leaping across the room. Mom! Patriot's dead. He's been dead for years. What? No, that's nonsense. No, where where did that dog go? Pat? Where are you, Patriot? She wandered off down the hallway, and I turned to my wife. Her mouth moved silently as if she were trying to form words, but hadn't yet decided what those words would be. (sighs) Home sweet home. Once I had returned Patriot to his disturbed grave in the backyard and recovered from the shock of seeing the unearthed corpse of my childhood pet, I replaced the sheets and climbed into bed beside my wife. This was the part of the trip that scared me the most. Going to sleep. Still glad we came here? She's just sick, Vincent. She needs a lot of love and attention. I know it's going to be a struggle for a while. Just try to power through it, okay? I know, I know. But you have to realize, it's going to get a lot worse while we're here. Things are going to go to shit soon. Maybe not so much for you, but for me. How so? The dreams. I, I don't want to talk about it right now. Let's let's go to sleep. <laughs> Wait. No, you can't just drop some cryptic, the dreams shit on me and just go to bed. You're being so dramatic. I'm not joking, Vanessa. It gets bad for me. Can can we just go to bed? I drove eight hours to get here. I'm tired. Vanessa stopped laughing, but she still had a lighthearted grin. Okay, drama queen. I love you. Love you too. We kissed and I reached over to the bedstand to turn off the lights. My mother's barely coherent ramblings replayed themselves in my head over and over, striking more guilt into me every time she spoke. Even so, little by little, I drifted off. The second I fell asleep, my eyelids shot open. Every single muscle in my body was frozen, and my line of sight was glued to the off-white paint of the ceiling. I couldn't even force myself to blink. No, no, not again! I tugged desperately at my invisible restraints. My mind was blank, but I knew I wasn't dreaming. The world around me was so sharp, so vivid. I had experienced this sensation one too many times as a young boy. I knew what was coming. 
From the hallway, I heard the soft tapping of padded paws, followed by the rough sound of a papery, bony mass dragging itself down the hardwood floor like a canvas bag filled with wooden pegs. Whatever was lugging itself through the hallway towards my bedroom door unleashed a series of strained grunts and pants that made me want to tremble. If only my body wasn't petrified. I knew the creature had entered the room when the sound of its feet and body were muffled by carpet. The creature leapt onto the bed, its light body stumbling clumsy over my legs. What the fuck is on top of me? The creature continued to move up my body, stopping when its front paws were against my collarbone. With my gaze glued to the ceiling, all I could see of the animal was its pale gray nose, the nose of a dog long since deceased. The decaying dog's nose disappeared from my line of sight as it crouched down and ran its dry, dead tongue over my neck and chin. It was like parchment, cold and coarse against my sweat-drenched skin. Goosebumps exploded across my flesh. My heart thudded against my ribcage like a prisoner trying to break free. Despite my best efforts, I couldn't break from this trance. The dog shifted and sat on my chest. Its tail whipped me twice in the face like a long, hairless finger. The beast let out a low growl. The low growl rose to an aggressive snarl, which turned into the most vicious barking I had ever heard from a dog. I braced myself for it to bury its jagged teeth in my neck. And that's when I woke up. I sat up, panting, gasping for breath. Sweat had soaked through my shirt, and despite having just awoken, my hands trembled from adrenaline. I swallowed huge mouthfuls of air, cooling my burning lungs. The dog was gone. I was all alone in the room save for my wife, who still slept peacefully. I buried my face in my hands and fell back into bed, my throat burning with the sobs I kept trapped in my throat. (sighs) This was going to be a long two weeks. Wow. That's kind of horrifying. That's got to be one of the scariest dreams I've heard of, actually. It's not really a dream, though. Sleep paralysis is way worse than a dream. There's, there's no vagueness, no separation from your surroundings. It's more like a terrible hallucination. You're completely awake. Is that really the house fault, though? I mean, after seeing Patriot, I can imagine that would give you a few bad dreams for a night or two. It wasn't a dream. It was sleep paralysis. That's an important distinction. And yeah, I think it is. That's the little thing I didn't want to talk about. I always had sleep paralysis in that house. Every damn night. It was awful. And the kids around town used to say the place was haunted. A witch was hanged on the property a few centuries back, and they say he's buried on the property. That his coven wanted to protect his bones. Most old-timers say that he's buried somewhere else, or just burned up. But I don't buy it. I think it really is haunted. That's a lot to unpack. I turned right and pulled the car into the parking lot of the Caspian Veterinary Clinic. Vanessa and I climbed out, and I pulled my black duffel bag out of the back of the car, and together we walked in. Patriot's body only weighed a few pounds, as at this point he was just papery skin and dry bones. But the weight and knowledge of what I carried dragged me down. Blonde hair and a nearly unpleasantly bright smile. 
She perked up from her computer and turned to the door as my wife and I entered the waiting room. How are you doing today? Hi, I, uh, I have a question. Uh, do you guys do cremations here? Oh, I'm so sorry. We do offer cremation services. When did your little furry or feathery friend pass? Well, like, ten years ago or something? The receptionist tilted her head. Pardon? I unzipped my duffel bag. Well, you see, my mother is senile and, well, she dug him up. The receptionist peered over the desk and into my bag before breaking into a gagging fit. Every last drop of unfiltered joy melted from her face. She lifted up her desk phone and backed away from the counter, pressing a button on the keypad as she did so. Dr. Michael, I need you out here pronto. The tension in the room was tangible. One need only to enter the dining room to feel the uncomfortable buzzing that tainted the air. Vanessa and I ate our dinners silently, not making eye contact with my mother. Not that it would have mattered. She probably wouldn't even have noticed. Mom's mental state had taken a dark turn. The normal, unfocused look in her eyes had grown scared, pained even, and her whole body seemed to tremble. She gripped the arms of her chair so tightly that her knuckles grew white, and she released a continuous, undying slew of bizarre ramblings. They... they killed him. They killed him. Nobody to protect me. Not safe, not safe. Leave me alone. Please. I winced every time she spoke. Vanessa kept looking up at me, but I just shrugged. There really wasn't much that I could do. Suddenly, Mom fell silent and looked straight ahead. An eerie feeling washed over me. It was the kind of uncomfortable, twisting sensation one feels in their gut when they feel that someone is standing behind them, watching them. Is everything okay, Mom? Make make him stop screaming. What? Nobody's screaming, Mom. I I don't like it when he screams. Mom stood from her seat, trembling like a small dog, and began backing up. Going into protective mode, I shot from my chair and approached my mother. Mom, relax. I know you can have fainting fits. Sit back down and eat. Make him stop screaming! Make him stop screaming! Make him stop screaming! Her eyes rolled back into her head and she fell backwards. I shot forward and caught her. Vanessa gasped. Oh my god! Is she going to be okay? Yeah, yeah, she'll be fine. My brother told me that she has fainting fits sometimes. I'm going to bring her into the living room. I'll let her sleep in the recliner tonight. I don't want to slip and accidentally drop her down the stairs. Vanessa nodded and stood up. No, no, honey, it's fine. I've got her. Sit back down and finish your meal. Okay, honey. When I entered the living room, I felt the uneasiness from the table again. That feeling that I wasn't alone. I blindly made my way through the dark room to the recliner and gently placed my mother down. Out of the corner of my eye, I could have sworn that I saw the shadow of a man, and for a brief moment, my blood pressure skyrocketed. I turned, quickly, priming my fists for a fight that I would most certainly lose. It was nothing. There was no man, no shadow, just a small window looking out into the dark night. (sighs) I sighed and wiped a bead of sweat from my head. I really needed some rest. Some real rest rest.
My eyes shot open again, looking directly at the ceiling. The room was dark and the door was closed. I'd made sure of that before going to bed. In fact, I had tried my hardest to ensure a good night's sleep. I had even taken a double dose of melatonin. Apparently, even that wasn't good enough to keep my eyes closed. Blood rushed through my veins at top speed, and energy that wanted to manifest itself as shivers ran up and down my body. But in my fully paralyzed state, the energy remained trapped. There was a knock at the door. A man's voice. A deep, gravelly croak came from the hallway. Vincent. Vincent, it's been so long. Won't you let me in? No. Very well. <laughs> the voice laughed, and there was silence. I felt a single drop of some thick, icy liquid land on my head. A little black hole, no larger than a marble, had appeared on the ceiling, from which several drops of a black, inky substance were released. The hole began to grow, as if the ceiling was being corroded by some kind of acid, revealing pure darkness. Not a normal kind of darkness where light is absent, but a positive darkness, one that ate light. The strange ink began pouring from the hole, which had grown to the size of a person. Only instead of falling to the ground, it was caught in the air as if it were dropped in water and began to billow and twist like black storm clouds. A long, bony hand with fingers like long spider legs slowly emerged from the darkness and grabbed onto an unaffected portion of the ceiling, followed by a long arm, a face, and a torso. The skin on the man was a pale, sickly gray, and it clung to his bones like paper mache. Long, greasy hair fell from his head. The man's spine heavily protruded, and several segments of his flesh had been eaten away, revealing black, decaying muscle. His other arm came out, along with the rest of his naked body, and he scurried across the ceiling like a giant roach until he was out of sight, his joints cracking and snapping with every motion. I tried with all my energy to move my body, but I was glued into my position. The man's face suddenly appeared in my line of sight. His eyes were several sizes too small for their sockets. His smile was nearly long enough to split his face in half, and his nose appeared to have entirely fallen off, revealing its decaying bridge. It's been so long, Vincent. We're going to have so much fun. The man laughed and opened his mouth wide, so wide in fact that all I could see was the man's black tongue and jagged black and yellow teeth. A cockroach scurried out from the back of his throat, followed by two more, and four. Soon an entire swarm of cockroaches had emerged from inside of the man, and they began crawling out of his mouth many falling and landing on me before scurrying around. My flesh crawled and itched with the sensation of the creature's little legs. I tried to buck and squirm and was eventually able to break free from my paralysis. Once I had successfully moved my body, I began thrashing my limbs and I tumbled out of bed. The man was gone. There were no more bugs. Even so, I could still feel their dreadful bodies scurrying up and down my own. I ripped off all my clothes, gasping for breath, this time not even trying to hold back my tears. Another episode. 
I looked back at my wife, who was sitting in a chair across the room with a book on her lap. I... Uh, yeah. Why are you up so late? Or early, rather? Woke up about an hour ago. I couldn't fall back asleep. Probably won't for the rest of the night. I looked at the clock. It read 4.01. So... I, I, I guess it's breakfast time, then? Vanessa smiled and closed her book. I guess so. It became progressively more difficult for me to focus on my book over the tortured ramblings of my mother. Every time I managed to immerse myself in the novel, a gasp, a moan, or a plea would escape my mother's lips. Why won't they leave me alone? You're fine, Mom. Nobody's here but you and me. I flipped to the next page. You're safe here. No, please, please, no. No more bugs. Leave me alone, please. Ladies, I don't like the roaches, please. I don't like them. My attention was ripped from my book, and I slowly looked up at my mother. She sat in an old rocking chair, staring off into space. That feeling of being accompanied by some other person returned once more, and I glanced around the room. I was growing increasingly less comfortable in the living room. I closed my book and stood up. Hey, Mom, you want to go for a walk? Mom looked slowly up at me but didn't speak. Come on, Mom, let's go. I helped my mother out of her chair and into her jacket. Vanessa emerged from the kitchen. Going somewhere? Yeah, I'm taking Mom for a walk. Want to come? A huge grin broke out on Vanessa's face. I wish that I could, but I'm working soon. I have to take a shower, but I'm so glad to see you two spending time together. I shrugged. All right, babe, I'll see you when I get back. Love you. Love you too. There was one thing that I missed about my old home, the crisp Pennsylvania air in the heart of autumn. I inhaled the icy air and grinned. After being cooped up in that house all morning, it was nice to be out. I could barely handle two hours in that dreadful building. Most of the trees were already barren, their limbs dead veins spreading across the blank slate sky. Every once in a while, my mother and I would pass a tree which still had bushels of leaves clinging to one or two of its branches that rustled softly in the cool breeze. As we walked, Mom's ramblings slowed, and eventually they fell quiet. Her eyes grew sharper, more focused, and her steps became more intentional. The anxiety that scarred her features seemed to melt away. And soon, she nearly had a grin on her face. We were at the foot of the long gravel driveway when she grabbed my shoulder. Wait, don't make me go back. My heart leapt in my chest, and I turned to look at my mother. Mom, what's... are you okay? No, I, I can't go back. Not now the Patriot's gone. Mom, Patriot's been dead for a very, very long time. And his spirit was protecting me. It was protecting all of us until you went and burned his bones. Mom's gaze shifted up to the house, and almost instantly her face went back to its usual confused, anxious state, with distant, unfocused eyes and a faint grimace. The bones. Maybe the bones in the basement. I, I don't like the man in the basement. 
He plays with the bugs. He scares. Oh, I don't like it when he looks at me like that. I followed my mother's gaze to one of the second floor windows. I nearly screamed when I saw the gray man looking down at me, dragging his long, sharp nails down the glass. Vanessa! I started to sprint toward the house. I needed to get my wife out. My feet collided with each other and I fell to the ground. When I stood, I looked back to the window, only to realize I was looking at my wife, waving her hand at me. I must have misseen her. Perhaps it was glare in a window? (sighs) That must have been it. I waved back to my wife, who seemed to have grown concerned by my odd outburst, and turned back to my mother. You scared the crap out of me, Mom. Come on. I took my mother's hand and led her back to the house. Dinner that night was truly not all that different from the previous night. Mom simply stared at a meal, hardly eating and mumbling horrified pleas under her breath. Vanessa silently ate her meal, not entirely sure what to say or if she should say anything. My behavior, however, was where things had begun to change. Instead of eating, I simply stared at the basement door. Mom had said something about bones being in the basement. Perhaps that's where the witch's bones were hidden. Vince! I jumped and looked at my wife. Can I help you? You should probably make sure your mother is eating. I don't want her starving while we're here. Yeah, I guess... When I shifted my gaze to where my mother sat, a scream was ripped from my lungs... In her seat sat the gray man with his small eyes and broad grin. Wolf spiders and cockroaches scuttled up and down his dead flesh. The top of his head scraped the ceiling and his black tongue hung out the side of his mouth like a hound dog. I jumped from my seat and tossed my plate like a frisbee towards the being's face. Vincent, what the hell? I looked at Vanessa, adrenaline searing every square inch of my body. What? Don't you see? I pointed back to the gray man, but he was gone. My mother was back in her seat, seemingly unaffected by the outburst. She continued muttering into her nearly untouched food. The wall behind her head was caked with mashed potatoes and gravy above the shattered remnants of the plate that once held them. And turkey and peas scattered the floor. Vanessa rushed over to the mess to pick it up. Wait, let me get it. No! Go upstairs and get some goddamn rest. For God's sake, Vincent, you're acting like a lunatic. Go. Now. I stared for just a moment before promptly obeying my wife. Once I was in the room, I slammed the door shut and began to pace, my panic severely impeding my motor skills. Repeatedly, I ran my hand through my already messy brown hair. I would do everything in my power to stay awake. Unfortunately, everything in my power was not quite enough to keep me from the cold jaws of sleep. After about an hour of pacing, I collapsed into the chair facing the bed, and before I knew it, I was asleep. That is, until my eyes once again opened, and I was once again completely paralyzed and overcome with fear. This time, my eyes were glued to my sleeping wife across the room in bed. This night, she was staring at the ceiling, her eyes wide open and her face contorted in fear. Her body was completely motionless. I realized that she too was paralyzed and I tried to break free, tried to protect her. 
But I couldn't. I never could. The gray man was already in the room, standing above the bed, staring at my wife. Once I had become aware of the man's presence, his head jerked in my direction with a sharp crack. Bugs of every kind swarmed every inch of the man's gray, naked body. Ah, Vincent. I am so glad you're awake. Why don't you join us? He placed his hands on the floor and crawled over to me. Once he was close enough, he put his hands on my shoulder and got within an inch of my face. He opened his mouth, and a swarm of flies and roaches flew out, completely covering my face. His breath possessed the odor of a dead animal that had been lost in a person's chimney throughout an entire summer month. This night, my paralysis was stronger. I just couldn't break free, even with various insects exploring the facets of my body. Now, I think it's time I met your wife, don't you? (laughs) The gray man crawled back across the room and up onto the bed. He dragged his long nails slowly down Vanessa's face, insects crawling down his arm and onto her body. I finally broke from my trance and ran towards my wife. The man was gone, as were the bugs, but she was still staring at the ceiling, horror distorting her face. Four long gashes were now visible along her cheek and forehead, with small beads of blood trickling from the wounds. Vanessa, wake up! I violently shook Vanessa until she gasped and began to move. She burst into tears and wrapped her arms around me. Did you see? Yes, I saw him. We need to go now. This shit is real. Get my mother and get her out of the house. I have to do something that might endanger both of you. Get across the street. I'll be out soon. Stay safe. She placed a kiss on my lips. I love you. I love you too. Now go. My wife and I ran to the door, but when I threw it open, it instantly jerked itself out of my hand and slammed itself shut. I tried to open it again, but it wouldn't budge. Have it your way. I lifted my foot and slammed it against the door, causing it to split down the middle. After pushing half of it down, I shot out into the hallway and down the stairs. I turned left towards the garage, where I saw the gray man hanging from the ceiling. I ran forward and pushed the door open as the creature dropped to the floor, thousands of insects swarming from his body. He let out an unnaturally shrill shriek that nearly disabled me. The man charged forward, but I was ready. I pulled a sledgehammer from one of the shelves and I heaved it at him. It collided with the gray man's face, knocking him to the ground with an animalistic screech. I grabbed a red container of gasoline and leapt over the gray man, who wouldn't be kept for long, and slammed the door behind me. I ran through the house toward the basement and nearly leapt down the stairs. I had to find the bones. I swung the sledgehammer against the wooden walls, destroying every inch of drywall. The black ink began to drip from the ceiling again. I knew there was little time. I moved on to the third wall. The man's arm started to protrude from the still-expanding hole. Finally, I found them. A pile of bones fell forward, landing at my feet. For how twisted and long the gray man looked, I was surprised by how average his bones were in both size and form. Not that there was time to ponder the mechanics. 
I poured the gasoline over the pile of bones and struck a match just as the gray man fell from the ceiling. As the match fell through the musty basement air, the gray man began scuttling forward. The match hit the bones and a flame erupted, causing the gray man to screech in pain. He began wailing and twisting as not only his bones, but his current animated form burned to ashes. I shot up the stairs and out of the house just as the flames began eating away the one remaining wall and the ceiling of the basement. Mom, Vanessa, and I stood watching from the other side of the street as the firefighters tried to douse the flames, rushing to beat the fire before it spread to the surrounding forestry. Mom's eyes were sharp and focused once again, and despite watching her home burn to the ground, she had a soft grin on her face. She was finally free from the unrelenting hell that had plagued her in that house. As was I. The nightmares, the fears, the horrible memories, all of those things were gone, burned with the home I grew up in. I could finally move on. The nightmare was over. In our final tale, we join a young woman recovering from a boating accident. But the accident has left her haunted, haunted by the past, haunted by trauma. And in this tale, shared with us by author Evan A. Davis, she's also haunted by appearances from a mystery woman. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Doolin, Jessica McAvoy, and Nicole Goodnight. So sink into this tale with us as we explore what it means to survive and how you go on living when you're connected to the bones of Lily Gordon. There's a rustle in one of the bushes just outside my window. I stare at the ceiling, waiting for some nighttime shadow to creep across the white, but nothing ever comes. Soon, the rustling is gone, and silence bleeds back into the room again like an unwelcome fog. It's choking, vulnerable. My ears straining for every little sound, but the only ones there are Jared's soft snoring and the odd car passing in the background. Still, I twist a handful of sheet in each hand a little more tightly every time his breath disturbs the quiet. My ears perk, vigilant for the hushed slither over the floorboards, the shuffle up the stairs, or the gentle click of the doorknob, all hiding under the sound of his breathing. My heart thumps, my jaw shifts and tenses, and I throw off the covers. I clap my feet against the hardwood, 
gentle enough to let Jared sleep, but loudly enough to drive back any stalking shadows. I quietly march down the hallway until I reach the bathroom. I turn on the light, run the faucet, and look at myself in the mirror, slack-jawed and exhausted. I haven't slept since Jared brought me home after my accident. Just lose time here and there. I run the cold water down my hands and over my knuckles. Then I pinch my nose and rub my eyes with wet fingers. A deep breath stretches my chest, and I realize something. I made it to the bathroom. No monsters, no shadows... No squirming horrors to grab me. I breathe again. And this time smile, too. It's all in my head. Real and scary, but just in my head. I can control what's in my head. Nothing from outside is reaching in to get me. I am the master of my own mind. I dry my face, my hands and give myself another good long look in the mirror. I wink at my reflection and hit the light. This time, I tiptoe back down the hallway, back to Jared's snoring, and slip back into the covers. I wriggle into the blankets and bury my face in my pillow, finally ready to pass the hell out. Then something taps the back of my head. I freeze for a minute, more confused than frightened. Then another tap shocks my neck just below the hairline, and wetness runs down to my shoulder. I roll over and examine the ceiling. Nothing. Just as pallid and blank and dry as it had been minutes before. It's nothing. Nothing to worry about. But I still keep staring at the ceiling. Still keep listening to Jared's breath. Eventually, after long enough, my eyelids get heavy again, and I let them close. I focus on the soft down of the sheets, the way the pillow cradles my head. It's comfortable, secure. I start to imagine what dream to finally give myself over to when another drop of water hits my forehead. I grit my teeth and squeeze my eyes shut. Just let it go. I tell myself again. There's nothing there. You know there's nothing there. Two more drops hit my nose and my cheek. My teeth grit and grind. Another drop hits my ear. Go away. Another hits my eyebrow. I sit up and shout, eyes bursting open. Go away! 
but the words don't come out. They catch at the back of my throat. She's right there, over my bed. She's oozing out of the ceiling. Torso stretched unnaturally long and reaching for me with hanging arms. Her face is bloated and peeling, head set on a crooked neck. An insect squirm out of a hundred slits on her arms. Staring at me with wide open, milky eyes from the center of a web of stringy, raven black hair, she gurgles through parsed lips. Her mouth is half stuffed with filth, which does nothing but muffled her checkered groans. More droplets run down strands of hair and dot my pillow as her mouth opens further revealing a formless tongue running between gray and broken teeth. My voice finally breaks free when her hands clutch around my head, broken nails digging in behind my ears and her fish-like eyes inches from my own. I kick and I scream and I thrash my arms, but her hands don't loose. She just matches my screaming with one long, deep croak and squeezes my head so hard I can't stand it. There's just so much hatred in her eyes and something inside me knows that I'm about to die. Then, in less time than it would take to blink, she's gone. The room is bright with daylight and there's a bird singing on a branch just outside. The bushes below the window rustle again as a breeze carries into the room and gently waves the curtains like the sails of a ship. Jared's standing in the doorway looking like he's just noticed me. He's wearing his usual red sleeping shirt and Spider-Man boxers. His mouth is moving like he's talking to me, but he isn't saying anything. My throat constricts and my heart thumps in my ears as I start to cry. The weight on the bed shifts, and I finally hear his voice. Hey, sweetheart. Hey, I've got you. I've got you. He's holding me now. His voice is sweet. Caring. Hey, baby, what's the matter? He's stroking my hair, but he stops. Did you see it again? I just bury my face in his chest and nod through another rack of sobs. There's this plant in the kitchen window that I bought when I first moved in. Jared has the walls painted a weird, honeydew green and always refused to change it. So I got him this little fern in a square clay pot to bring a warm color and some life to the place. While I sit here with some coffee he's poured me, I find myself fixated on the buzz of a fly that keeps circling that plant. It just circles a few times, lands, and circles again, 
I'm starting to grit my teeth again when I finally notice Jared's voice. Hey. He waves a hand at me. There you are. You went blank on me again. Sorry. Just, you know. Yeah. He has his hands in the pockets of his sweatpants and is leaning back against the counter. Do you want to talk about it? You mean again? Talk about it again? Well, yeah. That's how you're going to move forward, honey. I feel like a goddamn broken record, but yeah, it's the first step. You're just... Reliving your trauma when you... But that's not what it feels like, Jared. I hate shouting at him, and I don't mean to, but this know-it-all attitude when it comes to this shit just grates at me. Sorry. Again. He takes a deep breath and adjusts his lean against the counter. What is it like, then, when you see it? You've never described her more than one time. Is it the same one or different? It's her. Every time. And I don't know, it's... My eyes settle on the fly again. It lands and scuttles underneath the leaves, then scuttles back out, and I fight off a sense of nausea. Babe. I don't know. It's like... It's like when you're in your happy place or something, and reality pokes through. Or maybe the other way around. I don't know. Either way, it's the same kind of grip on your heart. Like when you're being reminded of something. Something you're guilty of, or afraid of, or worried about. The pins and needles under your scalp, the tingle in your fingers, all of that. He rubs his lips together, but doesn't say anything. He knows the word I want to use, but I know he'll just make some joke about burning white sage and bring it back to his armchair psychology he's so sure about. (laughs) Instead, he chuckles a little. You know what I just realized? I don't think you've been in your studio since you've been back. He pauses a second, gauging my reaction. Then, without waiting for an answer, he walks over to me and reaches out his hand. Come on. Van Gogh should get back to our office. I take his hand, and he leads me around the corner up the stairs and to a familiar door on the right. Even before he opens it and gestures me through, the earthy smell of oils washes and dusty canvas sneaks under the door and up to my nose. I step through the threshold like I'm walking into a different world altogether, so suddenly wrapped and swaddled in the smell of that room. He walks me over to the easel in the corner and pulls the sheet from the room's skylight while I uncover the canvas. And right then, 
the rest of the world goes away. For a few moments, a lakeside house is all that exists, with a willow in the foreground lazily tickling the water's surface, and a girl in a light dress on the other shore. It's supposed to be my grandparents' house, or how I remember it 20-some-odd years ago, though it's not done yet. There's a truck on the gravel road that's only an outline, and a shed nearer the background that's without defined features. But for the first time since coming back, my mind doesn't feel... heavy. Jared's phone ringing breaks the spell, and I look over my shoulder to see him check the screen, silence it, and quickly put it back in his pocket. Sorry. He smiles sheepishly. I shake my head in a way that says, it's fine. Who was it? There's a moment where he just rubs his fingers together and looks at me like a deer caught in the headlights. Simone. Sorry. Yeah. She calls every so often to check up on you, but I figure we'll give you a few more days to get yourself together before flooding you with visitors in the get-well-soon paraphernalia. He stands there, guiltily scratching his elbow, looking like a boy who's just admitted to stealing his friend's allowance. I was wondering where all my loving cards were. I follow with a wink to let him know he's off the hook. (laughs) He laughs and goes to say something, but there's a knock on the front door downstairs. I take a step, but he puts a hand out. I got it. He motions to the easel. Go ahead and get yourself reacquainted with your pal Roy, and I'll be back in a minute. I raise an eyebrow. Roy? Roy G. Biv? Colors of the rainbow? (laughs) You call yourself a painter. (laughs) He chuckles his way out of the room and leaves the door ajar. I pull the stool to the center of the room and take a seat. I would get some paints and a couple of brushes, but for now it's just nice to be here, surrounded by it all. With my eyes shut, I bask in the smell of oils, tents, the canvas, and the warmth of the sun coming in through the skylight. The quiet might be a little too quiet, because soon I realize I can hear Jared answering the door downstairs. Knowing I don't intend to start a project here and now, I give in to the temptation to eavesdrop. I manage to tiptoe out of the room, down the hall, to the top of the steps without so much as a squeak from the floorboards. I don't recognize the woman Jared's talking to. She's older than us, maybe late 40s, but she's wearing clothes I've seen my great-grandmother wear in old family photos. Her hair is beginning to turn from blonde to silver, but mostly what grabs my attention are her green eyes. 
I walk into what sounds like the middle of their conversation. Check in? Yes, check in. See how you're doing. How's everything been since... Oh, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been... Well, it hasn't been easy, but we're, um... I'm getting through it, you know? Getting there. Getting there. Good. Hmm. Good. Yep. The two stand there a bit awkwardly through a pause. Any luck with what we went over? Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. It's taken a little time, but I think I've started to make some legitimate headway. Hmm. I can see that. She glances over Jared's shoulder to me, and I shudder a little. He follows her eyes to me and turns back around. Thanks again for stopping by. It's really very considerate. I'll call next week. He closes the door before I make it all the way downstairs, but I still catch the silent smirk on her face as he does. Who was that? Who was who? The lady at the door. Who else? He looks at me pretty intently for a few moments, then around the room. His feet shift a little, and he flexes his fingers around his thumbs in each hand. My therapist. Oh. Oh. Honey, I didn't know. When did you start? Recently, okay? Okay, okay. It's not like him to snip at me. It's nothing to be embarrassed about, you know? I know. He sighs. He won't lift his eyes off the floor in front of him. It's just... I know there isn't the most room for me to complain, but what happened was hard for me, too. There's something in the way he says it, something in the way he won't look at me in the moment that, like my painting upstairs, makes me forget everything else. I walk over to him, put his arms around my shoulders, and listen to his heartbeat with my head on his chest. I wouldn't know until later that this was the last moment of comfort I'd remember for a long, long time. Jared's at work today. I open up the windows for the breeze and the smell of last night's rain. And after making the bed, I go downstairs to the kitchen. On the table is the vase of flowers, a few balloons on sticks, and a small bundle of get well soon cards from all of our friends and my co-workers. One step at a time, Jared had said. We'll work up to visitors next. I'd complain more about wanting company, 
but I know this hasn't been easy on him either. It was his idea to go out on the boat, but it had been mine to get drunk. I turned a nice, sweet anniversary into an incident. Cooperating with him in the name of recovery seems only fair. But more than that is that when Jared's around, she feels so far away, like a distant memory. I know he doesn't like me using the word haunted, but I don't know any better word for it. I must have mentioned it less than a week after moving in with him, the vibes his place gave me. But he just made his jokes. They went away for a while. The shadows in the corner, the eyes on the back of my neck, the empty whispers just outside my periphery, but came back after my accident. My Aunt Rebecca would say that near-death experiences can do that to a person, and Jared would say there's a name for that. I'm standing at the sink, debating with myself over doing some dishes, when there's a knock from the front door. I'm excited, at first, but as I walk across the house to answer it, my feet get slower and slower until... When I finally make it, I'm just able to stand. I want to open the door, but every part of my body is tensed, like I'm fighting gravity. I get as far as looking through the peephole, where I can see the group of Girl Scouts on the porch waiting for a response. Still, my hand just trembles in front of the doorknob. I can't shape into words the feeling exactly, but it's like a part of me, deep down, is sure that outside is a vacuum, a void, like I'll fall up into the sky and sink into an endless chasm of cold and stars. A sound under the floor brings me back to Earth, and immediately I notice it's happened again. The Girl Scouts are gone. The light is different. And the sun's pouring now deep golden light through the kitchen windows, the other side of the house. All of a sudden, it's become evening. I sigh. But then another low thud from the basement startles it short. I have to squint my eyes to see it at first. But sure enough, it's there. A dark spot, like a shadow blossoming from between the floorboards, just a few feet away. It's a fight with my senses, wrestling, negotiating with my mind over whether or not to trust what I'm seeing. (gasps) Another low boom rattles the floor. Bubbles are foaming from a crack at the center of the spreading darkness now. I stay frozen in place, but my knees buckle and my stomach is twisting in on itself. The shadow stretches across the doorway between the kitchen and the living room, and as it touches the light, the gold sparkles, ripples, and dances. 
It's water. It's just water. Oh shit, water! Oh no! I look around for a towel or a blanket to throw on the leak while I think of the countless times Jared said he was going to get the pipes fixed. I drag a beach towel out of the hall closet and try to use that to shore up the still growing pool. I make my way through the kitchen and around the basement stairs, still chuckling at my own panic attack moments before. I glide down the rickety stairs and try the old handle. It sticks for a second, so I rattle it a bit and really crank on it. Then, water runs over my bare feet from under the door, and before I can even think, the concrete floor itself is different. It's softer. And softer. Until it's like wet mud with my feet sinking up to the ankles. I try to backpedal up the stairs, but they lose their shape and become another wall of slick mud and silt. Stems, like weeds on the bed of a lake, worm upwards out of the walls and gently wave with an invisible current. Something slams against the door hard enough to crack the wood, and a tortured moan bellows from the other side. My teeth are chattering, and my heart is about to burst through my lungs, but I'm swallowing my breath as best I can, even though the air has gone cold and thick. It's okay. It's just inside your head. You can control what's in your head. There are more heavy slams against the door. But soon they stop. Something, less than a few inches from my feet, starts rising out of the ground. The pounding in my chest suddenly holds still. Her head and now her shoulders are out of the floor. The muck slides down her face, revealing her milky, unblinking eyes first. It's okay. It's okay. She can't. Before I finish the thought, she lunges at me. Her hands claw into my neck with a grip like iron, and she thrusts me back against the wall. Mud and silt and slime run down over my face and into my mouth. I kick and thrash, but my body is heavier than lead. She croaks a deep, baleful moan next to my face, and I can feel her jagged teeth scrape down my cheek. My whole world is her. No breath, no thoughts. No life outside of her hands around my throat and the feral hatred in her bulging dead eyes. Then, nothing at all. Jared says he found me at the bottom of the stairs. He says I was in the middle of a seizure 
and that he brought me upstairs and helped me come out of it. Though I don't remember any of that. The next thing I recall is him telling me all of that in the kitchen. Now we're in my studio, just sitting together. Like a picture slowly coming into focus, Jared's voice crystallizes out of the static. I... I... I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but we'll get through it. It won't be like this forever, and we won't have to deal with- What's all this we, Jared? You keep saying we, but I'm the one who has to see her. I'm the one who feels all this shit. I'm the one, Jared. He bites the inside of his lip, like he's picking his next word carefully. You're right. You do have someone in your corner. Honey, I'm here to take care of you. And it's not like these hallucinations have been a picnic for me either. Oh my god, stop it! Just shut up! You have no idea how hard this is. She's haunting me. I can't sleep, don't eat, I can't even make myself go outside. I feel torn up and trapped. And that you don't believe me when I tell you these things is worse. I know he's formulating the wind-up for some retort, but I'm spared by the doorbell ringing. Clearly, we both wanted out of the conversation, because neither of us says anything at being interrupted or makes an attempt to continue. He just sort of puts his hands up and walks out. I follow him down the stairs wordlessly, And when he opens the door, I almost forget that I'm mad. Almost. Simone's standing on the porch with her arms crossed. Her nose and eyes are red, like she's either sick or been crying. Oh, um, hey. He throws me some awkward glance as he quickly snakes through the door and closes it behind him. I don't think Simone even sees me, or if she does, she doesn't say anything. I go to open the door, to not be put out of whatever conversation is so important, but the same thing happens. I freeze. I'm listening to their voices just a few feet away, muffled by the door, but I can't open it for the life of me. I can't think of what to do with myself, so I storm off to the kitchen rather than torture myself trying to listen in on them. What the hell could they be talking about that I can't be a part of? Isn't she here to see me anyway? And if not, why not? I've been home for days and not one visitor. I look back to the pile of cards and unopened candy on the table. It's funny how easy it is to send a card, but not take the time for a ten-minute drive. I flip through a couple on my way to the recycling bin, but stop. I shuffle back over to the sink. Get well soon. From Karen. You've been through worse, kid. Writes Charlie. Can't wait to see you. 
with a little heart over the eye from Dominique. I'm not sure why, but for some reason I hate these cards. I want to think of them as well-meaning, but something about them makes me furious. Furious enough that I finally realize something I wish I'd thought of sooner. The buzzing of a fly pulls my attention to the window, and just when I'm about to scream, I realize I'm being watched. There's an old woman out on the street, just off the curb, watching me. She has a little dog on a leash that's trying to pull her forward, but she still just stands there staring through my window. My anger turns to feeling more and more uneasy the longer she creepily watches me. I finally wave my hand as if to say, hello, and immediately, whatever spell she's under breaks, and she scurries down the sidewalk. Before I can even focus on that, I hear a commotion from the front of the house. Jared's just come through the door, but I can see Simone marching down the driveway like she's shouting at no one in particular. He comes into the kitchen, but stops when he sees me. His eyes flicker back and forth between my own and the cards in my hand. Listen. She wanted to come in, see how you're doing. I just think that, I mean, we're getting close, but I'm not sure you're ready yet, you know? I figure just a few more days we can... Why'd you bring me home? What? After I slipped on the boat, hit my head, and whatever, you dove in and saved me. But why did you bring me home? Why didn't you take me to a hospital? What? Uh, I, come on. It, because it wasn't bad enough for a... I almost drowned, Jared. I could have died, and you don't think that's reason enough to see a doctor? Well, because I thought we could... Even after that! Even if you think I'm just hallucinating, I start seeing ghosts again! Hey! I told you. And then I have a seizure at the bottom of the stairs, and you still don't see a reason to go to the emergency room? You know what? I'm not going to deal with this right now. Jared, don't you walk away from me. Jared! Jared! We spend that afternoon talking and smoothing things over once we both had a chance to cool down. He apologizes and blames it on stress at work, saying that tomorrow morning he'll help me go outside, that we can go for a walk around the neighborhood for starters. We don't make much more of the hospital talk, but I do what I can to understand. I don't know what our insurance is like, and I would probably panic too if things had been the other way around. I apologize too, saying I'll be more patient with how he's handling everything and hop in the shower before bed. The water burns at first, but in a way that feels like an itch being scratched, pain which quickly turns to euphoric relief. For a while... I stand there with it hypnotically drumming like rain on my upper back. 
slowly, my hands start finding their way around. They glide up my legs and pause on my hips for a few sways, then cross, hugging my sides. With a big breath, they pet my ribs, caress my chest, and lace together behind my neck to cradle my head. Together with the hot water, they massage my scalp, and I let my fingers run through my hair, rubbing and scratching away the stress. I get grit under my nails after a moment. It's probably from lying at the bottom of the basement stairs, I figure. I rinse it out and go back to combing my hair with my hands when I find something like wet cobwebs toward the tips. I turn to face the water and hang my head, letting the curtain of hair flow while I thoroughly scratch and clean the rest of the dirt. But it just keeps coming. Scratching after scratching of silt and sand and the discoloration of dirt streaming down the drain. I keep scratching, and first a weed, then a worm alive and writhing falls onto my foot. Right when I'm about to shriek, the water goes freezing cold. I blink several times from the shock of it, and when I open my eyes again, there's another pair of feet just behind my own. Except they're... wrong. The skin is brackish and blue. The nails are black, split, or missing. I feel someone else's fingers weave into my hair and lace in between my own. And a gurgling croak growls at the back of my neck. Immediately, I scream and break from the shallow, falling right through the curtain. I hit my head on something, but I don't stop. I run, screaming through sobs. I burst through our bedroom door, but it's dark. I spin around, turn on a light, and close the door behind me. The room's empty. On the bedside table, there's a little post-it note that reads, Ran to store, BRB, heart. I sit on the bed for minutes, deathly still, clutching the note in a fist, listening fiercely in the quiet. Nothing. It takes a world of effort, but eventually I inch my way to the edge of the bed, then to the door, and finally summon the strength to open it. The door creaks open to an empty hallway, silent but for the sound of the still-running shower. My knees buckling with every step, I tiptoe down the dim hallway. I'm halfway to the bathroom when the sound of glass breaking downstairs freezes me in place. Fear paralyzes me and roots me to the spot, even through the sound of footsteps ascending the dark stairs. T 
tears burn their way down my cheeks as the intruder makes it to the top. But when they step into the light, I stop knowing what to think. Simone? She's standing there, half looking at me, half scanning the doorways of the hall. She takes a few cautious steps forward, and in the light I can see. She's holding a knife. Simone? She walks silently towards me in the same way, and I backpedal until I reach the end, where I curl into a ball. Simone? Simone, what the fuck? Simone, what the... Hey, please! Still without a word, she walks right up to me, and at the last moment turns right to inspect the bedroom. Then she turns around, back down the hallway. She checks the bathroom, the shower, and bewilderingly goes back downstairs. I don't know what drives me forward, but I crawl on my hands and knees to the top of the staircase. She's going through the drawers on the desk in the living room, like I'm not even here. I grab a towel and wrap it around myself as I slowly come down the steps. Simone? Simone, hey! What do you want? Still no answer. Finally, something inside me breaks. What are you doing in my fucking house? She looks over her shoulder at me, glaring intently for a few moments. Then closes the drawers and walks into the kitchen. I follow her, furious now. Hey, I'm talking to you! But I don't even finish saying it. I try to grab her by the arm, but my fingers cut straight through, like trying to clutch smoke. (gasps) I recoil like I've been burned, screaming though there's no pain. She pauses momentarily and briefly rubs where my fingers pass, but keeps going, muttering something to herself. It's in your... You're the master of... This isn't... She isn't... My mind is numb. My chest feels hollow. I can't breathe. And I keep trying to swallow, but my throat's gone drier than ash. A million things that don't make sense blur through my head all at once. But through the dizziness, I hear Simone struggling with the door to the basement. Finally, there's the sound of wood breaking, and it's like someone has broken the seal of an airlock in space. A force like an impossibly strong wind pulls me across the kitchen, and I slide to the corner of the room. From here, 
I can see down the stairs where Simone's broken the basement door at the handle, letting it loosely swing open into the dark. In three slow, careful steps, Simone is swallowed up by the black, beyond the reach of the stairway's lone pale light. I pull myself to my feet and begin to follow her, gripped by a sour fear. My feet move shakily, slowly, and almost not even by my command at all. A part of me wants to chase her, to grab her by the collar and pull her out of that blackness. I'm not even certain she's real, but I want to protect her, to tell her to run and to leave. But the other part of me understands. I feel it too, what Alice felt staring into the dark of the rabbit hole. The same that pulled at Simone. And so, my feet move, one step at a time, until I wade into the dark with her. I can hear her fumbling for the light, but knowing the house, I search it out and pull the cord. When the bulb flickers to life, the breath is pulled from me so quickly, Simone is the only one of us able to scream. It's me. There's a row of benches arranged like seats on a bus along the back wall, which has been crudely painted to look like windows. I'm sitting in the middle bench looking out one of the windows. Except, it can't be me. The skin's so pale. And it's wrinkled, split and rotted in places. The neck is black from bruising. When I get closer, I see the stab marks. Dozens of them. They dot the chest, the arms through the sleeves of the sweatshirt, riddle the abdomen, and all down the legs. She's been propped with her discolored hands folded in her lap, and she's wearing headphones that run to an old CD player on a bag next to her. It looks like a sick diorama, using a corpse like a doll or a mannequin. I don't hear Jared come down the stairs until it's too late. There's a metallic impact and a thud. I turn around and see Jared standing over Simone holding a crowbar. I scream and run to stop him. But a rotted arm shoots out of the dark. Water sloshes around my feet and her jagged nails dig under my collarbone and ribs. The same dead eyes peer into mine as I'm tackled to the ground and choked. She's grunting and grinning a broken smile, slime pouring from her dead lips. There's a sickening crunch. And then I hear Jared's voice. Catherine. Catherine. That's enough. Like a scolded dog, she releases me and slithers away to a corner. 
but still enough in the light that her eyes stand out against the dark. He comes over to me. Honey, oh my god, are you alright? I am so sorry. She didn't hurt you, did she? Get away from me! Get away from me! I scramble on my hands and heels. No, 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 shh. It's all right, sweetheart. You're okay. She isn't going to hurt you again. I'm not going to hurt you. What do you mean, won't hurt me? What did you do to me? He mulls it over, nervously wringing his hands and biting his lip. Well, that's sort of complicated. What did you do to me? It wasn't something I wanted to do, exactly. I just... It was for you. The words make me want to scream and hit him, but a subtle growl from the corner keeps me quiet. My eyes settle on Simone's body. Her blood drips from the crowbar he's holding. Life can just get... So fucked up. And there's no getting away from it. You know, even if I could make you happy for a while, something would happen to ruin that. I just wanted to make you happy. As happy as I could. Then keep you from ever being sad again. He crouches down and tries meeting eyes with me. I know I'm not perfect, but I am getting better. Now I look back at him. I fight back tears and can't keep my jaw from trembling. Why... Why did you call her Catherine? Oh. Uh, I'm, he uh, stammers a moment then shakes his head, smiling. (laughs) She she was uh, a friend. I must have given away that I didn't understand. So he just pets my hand and continues. I, I did the same thing for her once, a couple of years ago. But when I did it for you, I just... Lily, I love you. I went back for you. She's angry, but honey, I think that's just because she's jealous. I cry through every word he says, exhausted. What do you mean you went back for me? Why are there so many holes? He leans forward on a knee and brushes hair out of my face. Back to the lake, sweetheart. (laughs) And they were so you wouldn't float, silly. Why else? It's too much. (laughs) I break away, wailing, and dash for the stairs. 
I'm at the top in a few leaping steps and I don't even bother with the door. He's calling after me the whole time. Lily! Lily! Hey, come on! I ignore him and run, not even realizing my towels disappeared and I'm suddenly dressed in jeans and a faded pink sweatshirt. The same way I was dressed in the diorama. I rush to the front door, but I just can't touch the damn thing. Like two of the same magnet, the door repels me from leaving. I jump on the couch and slam my fists against the windows, but they're as solid as concrete walls and don't even rattle. Jared's footsteps echo up the basement stairs, so I flee up to the second level of the house. I throw myself through the door to my studio and close it behind me. I don't know what else to do, so I ball up in the corner farthest from the doorway. There's something in my hand, and I realize I've had the post-it note from the bedroom clenched in my fist the whole time. On the stool by the easel is one of the get-well-soon cards that I'd left in here the day before. I open them both, examine them by the moon rays coming through the skylight, and tearfully crumple them. The handwriting is exactly the same. The door opens slowly. Okay. He sighs with an anger that's thinly veiled. It's fair to be a bit surprised. I planned on telling you, really. But it's like, did you even notice what it was? He waits a moment and then answers his own question. The bus... It was the moment we met, honey. Some appreciation of the romantic artistry must be kind of nice. My stomach bottoms out and pins prickle my cheeks. I'd stopped taking the bus months before I ever met Jared. I swallow hard. Don't call him sick. Don't make him mad. What what about the woman from the other day? Your therapist. What about her? Eliza? He rolls his eyes. Well, she's... She's not really a therapist. In the traditional sense. More like a consultant. A psychic, kind of. But she's how I got you back. How I got you here. Gave her a sob story about losing you, and she helped me... reach you. He smiles. Jared. My voice is dry from exhaustion and terror. His face twists into a frown and he looks away. You've been keeping 
me. Listen, I did what I did because I love you. You can either like that, or you can stay here with her. I follow his eyes over to my unfinished painting. The paint around the middle begins to melt and run down the canvas, like a candle blackening paper. With a sputtered croaking, Catherine's necrotic arms reach out of the oily abyss. My knees go weak and hope sinks out through my feet. I put on my best, twitching smile, look him in the eye, and meekly nod. He smiles, strides over to me for a hug, and I make my last mistake. I flinch. At first, I don't think he notices. He just holds me and breathes a single, big, deep breath. Finally, he holds me at arm's length. Fine, If it has to be like that... His grips on my arms tightens and he wrestles me toward the easel. Jared! Jared, no! Catherine's hands claw into my neck and shoulders as I'm pulled into Atari blackness. Oops. Sorry. Hey, I think you dropped this. Oh, wow, thanks. Wait a second. Do I know you? Hmm. Maybe. Uh, Jake's circuit class? No. No, no. Not it. Hey, do you ever go to Aromas? Huh. Just about every workday. Yeah. That's it. I knew you looked familiar. Hi, I'm Susan. Susan? Pleasure to meet you. I'm Jared. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. 
I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.